Mike Kiss Army. Welcome to the Kiss FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. Nothing is into your head. I hope you don't do any damage. This is a Kiss-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to episode 129 of the Kiss FAQ Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. And yes, two different faces who you should know if you're doing your diligence and watching other podcasts, such as Three Sides of the Coin or Podkissed recently. I'm joined today by the authors of Kiss Alive Forever, Kurt Gooch and Jeff Seuss. Gentlemen, it is an honor. Uh, You're a legend to me both of you, for the work that you've done, (laughs) the writings that you've done on the history of KISS. You've kept us entertained for many years, and we appreciate it. Thank you, Julian. It's good to be here. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, it's it's, it's great to to finally get on the show. Um, I think we've all known each other for far... For far longer than any of us would care to admit. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's great to be on the show. Let's talk KISS. Yeah, we, we actually go back quite a long way and never met in person. This is another one of those kind of situations that it's been online, it's been on the phone, it's been emails, it's been uh, news groups. So it, it's uh, good to see you in person, and hopefully, you know, one day it'll be in the flesh as well. So uh, let's, uh. let's get into... Um, I always ask new folks who join the FAQ panel um, just a couple of basic questions about them as KISS fans. You know, what was your first KISS album and how did you get introduced to the band? Uh, Kurt, let's start with you on that one. Uh, Back in 78, uh, my cousin bought me the Destroyer poster uh, for, I think, my birthday. And uh, I had that. And so a couple months later, I went to 7-Eleven looking for Star Wars cards. And they were out of Star Wars cards. And I didn't really care for sports, so I saw that they had KISS cards. And I still really didn't have a clue what KISS was other than the artwork on, of the Destroyer poster. But um, it looked interesting enough, so I picked up those cards. And uh, you know, there was just I was blown away by what I saw in those cards. It looked like... Uh, you know, monsters had come from another planet and started a rock band. That's awesome. What was the first album that you got as a result of that? The first album. The first good good one. Meet the yeah. Beatles cover and also the classics that they're still performing. If I'm going to put you on the spot and say, if you've got a fa- favorite member of Kiss or had a favorite member of Kiss, who would it be? Who's your your what's your Kool Aid? Probably Paul. Nice. I can always agree yeah. with that. Jeff, how about you? What was your first introduction to the band and its and your first album? I remember it very vividly. I was in second grade, and towards the end of class uh, one day, we had like 10 minutes of time to, to, to kill. And uh, this kid who I don't know if I've seen him since then, but I remember his name very well. His name is David Moody. He brought out uh, the Alive album, and uh, he had it sitting on his, in our desk we had like adjoining desks and i saw it and a lot like kurt i said what the hell is that it's like godzilla picked up a guitar and um so he showed it to me and i flipped it over and i started reading the song titles and i got to the fourth song title and you know i'm seven years old and i'm like oh, you can say you can print hell <laughs> on like a real thing you can't do that oh my god they're gonna be in so much trouble so he actually took the album out and got to put it on a cheap old phonograph that we had there in the classroom, and he played Firehouse. And um, I don't really remember the music as much as I just remember the image. 
and thinking there's no way they they can get get away with this this is just there's no way and uh that that was my first inter- introduction to kiss and i got this is probably 1976 i think and i got uh on eight track my parents bought me for my birthday i think the following year they bought me love gun and uh alive too which were both all completely out of order although i didn't know it at the time i didn't know it till years later they were in the wrong order but that was my that was my introduction to kiss you guys are lucky you gotta feel sorry for guys like me who got into the band in asylum uh what color kool-aid <laughs> do you drink jeff um it, it kind of went back and forth when i was a kid between ace and, and pop it was you pick a day it, it would have changed it was pretty close I guess it's the same for a lot of us these days as well. Depends on our mood, what flavor we're going to drink. Um, yeah. At the top here, we're going to obviously talk about Kiss Alive Forever. That's the whole purpose of this conversation. But right now, you've got something very current, very new going on, and it's a Facebook page, Kiss Alive Forever, the book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing? Because so far, I've seen some pretty cool articles that you're uh, kind of writing again. Yeah, we have started this about a month ago. We were already up to almost 1,000 followers. Um, and we have decided we, we have all this stuff that's been laying around for years, uh, and all these stories about the making of kiss life forever that we know people like to hear. So we decided we start sharing them on a Facebook page. I don't know why we didn't do this 10 years ago, but, um, we just wrote a story the other day about going to the Aids library in New York, uh, where kiss did a charity gig for back in 73, uh, to uncover what had happened and see, um, see the venue and take pictures of it for the book. Uh, and that was the place where we found the $20 library poster from 1973 sitting in, uh, still sitting in the library, by the way. Um, so stuff like that, but, uh, there's, we're, we've got a big thing coming next week that nobody knows about We should be saving it for kiss alive forever too, but Jeff wants to put it up. So we're going to put it up. Tell them about it, John. Yeah, we, we found, I found about probably about six months ago, um, I found just total needle in a haystack um, in April, April or March, I forget, 1974. There was a huge band that got up on stage and played with Kiss in a really tiny little little venue, and I'll just whet everybody's appetites uh, uh, with that, and we'll give everybody all the details uh, in in an article uh, coming up in in a few weeks. But um, I was lucky enough to find the the contract for uh, the show and all sorts of uh, you know interesting uh, things. And it, you know, Kurt and I are still blown away. It's 15 years since we published the book. Uh, it's 20 years since you know even more than that. Uh, 21, 22 years since we uh, began researching for the book, and here we are, and stuff still pops up. It's um, my favorite metaphor is this type of kiss stuff that, that that we do, that you do, Julian, you know, Ross Bradley, Ken Sharp. It's a lot like digging for dinosaurs, and uh, and you know, it's always a, a progression of enlightenment. The further we go, the longer the time, the the more stuff just keeps you know coming out of the coming out of the dirt and the sand and um so it's it's really cool and as you well know you get addicted to the dig to the discovery to the hunt oh you can you you can you cannot let it go because you know that just one layer down if you keep shoveling you're going to find something else you're always going to find another fossil somewhere there's there's always something new i mean it it doesn't stop kurt i mean you know that right 
I do. I mean, just last week, I, I, I've been researching a bunch of old cash box and record worlds and uh, some of the trades for another project Jeff and I are working on. And I keep coming across these KISS articles, which I stop and read. And I, I found an article about the second printing of the originals. I'd always wondered when that had come out and how many were made. And one thing that was in the article that I never knew is that the originals was never on 8-track for the first printing. It was only the second printing where they actually went to 8-track. So, um, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that I, you know, just off the cuff, just by accident found uh, that there were all, and there were 150,000 copies of the originals printed for the second printing, but as opposed to the 250 for the first one. Yeah, there was, um, I seem to recall, a Billboard article about Bogart's uh repackaging of the early catalogs uh, uh, something that they had some pretty good numbers or something but you know uh, a little bit off off the topic so your facebook page people could just plug in kiss alive forever the book and they're going to find your facebook page and they can like you and get your updates there yeah and also i should mention there's an article that we did that's really special um about the history of magic mountain and the kiss concert that happened there and we published that about two weeks ago and if you are a kiss fan Especially from the 70s, there's no way you're not going to be knocked out by this. And it's got pictures, everything. It's really amazing. So, you know, for everyone who's listening to this right now, there's new material being shared that you can freely read on Facebook. You know, in addition to the stuff, obviously, you guys did a lot for the Kiss magazine when it was around as well. Some very good articles in there. Um, but let's get back to what I guess you're best known for, and, and you guys have done a lot of other stuff as well. You you worked with the original KISS crew uh, early on on their book, didn't you? Uh, helping with some layouts and some ideas for that. You've helped Lydia Chris with hers. Obviously, you did the excellent, and it, I can't recommend it enough, the Larry Harris book, um, which is right. yeah. really, really good. So you've done a lot since KISS Alive Forever. And if I recall correctly, Kurt, you started out in fanzines, didn't you? I did. I started out as the U.S. representative for the Crazy Nights fanzine of Australia. <laughs> wow, can I have your autograph? Yeah. <laughs> can, yeah, can I, can I get a signed copy of that, please? You know, when, yeah. was, when was that, <laughs> mid-80s or so? No, uh, 92. 92. What about yeah. you, Jeff? Did you do any of that sort of stuff back before um, Kiss Alive Forever? Not, no, not really. I was I was just someone who, you know, eagerly read the, the Ken Sharp, goldmine articles which we need to talk about sometime today um but my first foray into you know really writing uh anything of substance was 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 kiss alive forever so let's talk how did the project start i mean i i know you've gone over it a few times in in other places but i want to start Mm -hmm. us off here at the beginning how did you guys meet and come together with the idea of let's do a book yeah well on the tour dates uh, I'll, I'll take the first uh, first part of this because this is really a tree with two completely separate branches uh, initially. Um, I'm sure you'll remember, Julie, and I know Kirk does, and a lot of the listeners will, that in about 19, what, 94, 95, uh, KISS announced that, hey, we're coming out with Kistory, which was that, you know, super oversized coffee table book. It was like, what, $150, $160. You could pre-order it. And for some reason, I have no idea why. When I pre-ordered, I thought, man, this is going to be great. They're going to have a list of all of Kiss's concerts in there. And that's how cool is that going to be to read? And uh, so after months of waiting, the book finally comes in. I crack it open, and there's no you know, massive list of, of tour dates in there. And I was just, like, crushed. I don't know why. 
I have no clue why I thought that was going to be in there. Well, um, I was living in Chicago um, uh, at the time uh, with my wife. Didn't have any kids, so I had plenty of free time. And the the Saturday after Kistry came in, um, I had stumbled across something that both of you, especially you, Julian, are going to be pretty familiar with called the KISS FAQ. Now, in 1995... <laughs> And in 1995, the internet was nowhere near what it is now. It was in its neonatal phase, and there were scarcely pictures on it. It was all just plain text on, on you know, primary color backgrounds. And um, there was this thing called the KISS FAQ, which was run then by your predecessor, Alex Carranza, if I remember correctly. Yep. And on there was a very small little touring history, which was incredibly incomplete, but it had a little bit of info. And that at that moment, I thought, I wonder if I could do this myself, just as literally just to create a list just for my own edification. And that was it. So um, I headed down to the um, Harold Washington Library in Chicago that weekend, uh, armed with a couple of notes I'd scribbled um, on, on some notebook paper. Uh, just going through history and writing down dates from handbills and a couple of the jeans notes and everything. And I went down there, found the Village Voice on microfilm, and 10 minutes of research, there it was, the ad for Coventry, or yeah. Popcorn Pub. And, you know, nobody'd seen this at this point in time. Because uh, one thing people may not be aware of, up until Chris Lent came out with his book, there was no book on KISS of substance whatsoever. You had the John Swenson headliners, the Robert Duncan book. Both of those are small little paperbacks from the 70s. The Peggy Tamarkin book, which was very, very cool from 1980, but it was basically a 100-page press kit. And none of those had put any effort into really doing a biogra biographical work on KISS. And so as I'm doing this, even Chris Lett's book hadn't come out yet. And once I got bit by that first Coventry article, and then um, a Bleecker Street Loft ad, and then another Coventry, you know, ad for the uh, the December shows. I, I was hooked instantly right like there. So I kept doing that, kept going to the library, looking through microfilm, and networking with people online, just going on the old uh, AOL KISS folder, the old Usenet groups, Rec yep. Artists, Judas KISS, which you guys remember, um, Mike Brandvold's uh, Kisataku. Yep. And, and then I got to know Mike personally because he lived about 10 minutes from me. But So I slowly started putting together a list of concerts. I had no plans to make this a book, nothing. Well, after about six months of work, eight months of work, I got an email from a guy I knew a little bit online by the name of Elliot Swainson. And he said, hey, I got a buddy that kind of did this, too. Here, he, he sent you a message. And there's this message down there that says, hey, I heard about the project you're working on. I've been working on something similar since 90, 91. Um, I've had access to a lot of the um, Inside Kiss people like, uh, you know, Lydia Chris and, uh, and so on. Um, why don't you call me and we'll compare notes? And that was Kurt. And I called him the next day and we talked, I don't know, five, six, seven hours, something like that straight. And it wasn't all about Kiss. It was just about everything we had in common from, you know, a fascination with the movie Halloween to Star Wars to whatever it was. And um, that's where our friendship, partnership or whatever started. And now I will shift over to Kurt, and he can 
take a couple steps back and tell his his branch of the story. Yeah, I had started working on it uh, when I was still in high school, believe it or not. Our library in the high school had the New York Times on microfilm. And so I started going through there and finding ads for uh, the, the garden show in 77 and various little things. And it just blew me away that this stuff existed. And I um, started working on this just in my spare time for years. I would add whatever I could confirm 100% to this list. And I probably had maybe 50 to 70 shows on this list. And that's when this friend of ours, Elliot, got in touch and said, hey, there's a guy outside uh, on the AOL boards trying to get everybody to do what you're doing. You might want to contact him. So uh, I did. And, you know, the rest, uh, three months later, we decided, you know, we were originally going to do this and give it to Gene. And then we decided about three months later, what are we doing? You know, let's let's do a book with this. Yeah, because so, I, I, I kept getting uh, this is how far back this goes. This is 1995. Kurt doesn't even own a computer. <laughs> so every time it, he would want to, so all this was done by phone uh, uh, initially. And I kept getting people say, after about like three or four months of working with Kurt, so maybe about a year after I started, people started saying, hey, this is really cool. Why don't you make a book of this? Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. And after about a dozen people said it, and I kept telling Kurt, hey, Everybody keeps saying we should do a book out of this. And finally, we're like, yeah, let's do a book out of it. And it was at that point where we finally started focusing away from just doing research to having a goal to, to publish it um, at, uh, you know, once we were finished, uh, finished writing it. Once you'd kind of decided that you're going to do a book with this, um, let's touch on Gene briefly. Yeah. How, how long did it take you to decide not to approach him or did you approach him and pitch the idea to anyone as you started to kind of solidify this project into something a little bit more concrete um i had one at one point and i think kurt might remember better than i do but i i had sent the list to uh to gene and um i don't even know why i did but I had sent the list to Gene, and I actually got a phone call from him. I wasn't there to, to get it, but he, he left a, a message on my, my answering machine saying that he got it. He was really impressed with it and said something like, you know, hey, we'll, we'll see you out there on tour. Thanks. Clicking. <laughs> and you know, I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Um, but that was about as far as it, it got. But um, once we decided to make it a book, my memory is that we decided instantly – that if we wanted to make this accurate, that getting Kiss involved was a really, really bad idea. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's for certain. So, how do you start defining the parameters of what you want to accomplish in this? Obviously, Kiss Alive Forever is far more than just a list. At its core, right. it is a list of the the concert dates that they performed, along with uh, many temp hall dates and cancel shows and stuff uh, that appeared in the itineraries uh, or that was planned. When did you start to broaden it out to say, okay, we want to have attendance figures, we want to have uh, costume notes, photographs, and most importantly are the interviews, I guess, um, with a lot of the kind of... Um, characters that are along the periphery backing up the band rather than the band themselves it, it happened rather organically uh we had been researching for probably about a year maybe not even quite that long and we realized that we needed one stop shopping 
because we were just kind of going back and forth trying to find a show here, a show there. We, I remember we found a show that they played in Tulsa, and so we went and looked in the newspaper for Lincoln, Nebraska, trying to find a show there, and we did. Um, and that was how we kind of built the early part of 1976, which was completely lost to time at that point. Um, but uh, we finally got smart and called Chris Lent, and Chris had saved a bunch of itineraries. And yes. Chris was nice enough to give us the copies of the itineraries along with phone numbers for two or three guys. And it was amazing because fr we got Fritz Postalweight's number, and that led to J.R. Smalling's number, and that led to Moose's number, which led to Mick Campisi's number. Uh, and it just, it just spiraled from there. Um, and next thing I know, I mean, seven years have passed. We put 75 grand into this project, and we had over 100 interviews on tape with people that most people had never even heard of at that point. Yeah, we have, we have, I still have it. It's literally, you know, 20 feet away from me right now. Um, we've got over 200 hours, more than that probably, of interviews with these people. And I agree with Kurt, it happened very organically. I mean, and it was kind of ballsy. I mean, I remember being nervous doing the first phone call, which I, I called J.R. Smalling. And I called him up and, you know, I kind of said, I'm sorry, are you the J.R. Smalling at the beginning of Kiss Alive? And he kind of laughed, said, yeah, that's me. And I talked to him for at least, oh, an hour, hour and a half straight. And uh, it was very cool and gave us his paperwork and all of his memories. And like Kurt said, that led to, oh, hey, here's Mick Campisi's number. Oh, hey, here's Rick Monroe's number. Oh, hey, here's Moose. And one of the nice things that came from that is those guys had not talked to each other in years and years and years, and that got them talking uh, again. And what was – Kurt has often pointed out, and I think he's right, we accidentally hit the exact perfect time uh, to write this book. And uh, um, this is a really great segue into uh, a, a couple other ideas. Uh, one – Nobody at the time, uh, like I said, nobody at the time had really written a book about Kiss. Chris's, Chris Lent's book finally came out, but his was his memoirs. He wasn't attempting to do the entire Kiss story uh, before and after uh, he left. Um, and so at that point in time, nobody had really stepped beyond the bounds of interviewing the band or maybe as far as they got away from the band was to Bill Coyne, to Sean Delaney, maybe to Lydia, maybe to Bob Ezrin or Eddie Kramer. And that's about as far away from the band as it got when people would begin to interview Kiss. And so we were able to kind of get the first interviews for, you know, all the road crew members and all the promoters who worked with the band and all these venue managers. And it, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and, and we were very fortunate in that regard uh, to in our timing is accidental, but it, we're very fortunate. And the other thing that's very fortunate is that we researched this at a time where it was difficult to research. And that sounds counterintuitive, but what I mean by that is if you would try to do Kiss Alive Forever now, in a way it would be much easier because you could go online, do keyword searches for literally 100 million newspaper pages right now. You'd get a lot of cool stuff fairly quickly. 
but because we had to physically go through hard copies of Cash Box and Record World and Performance Magazine and Billboard and Amusement Business and go through microfiche and microfilm of all these newspapers and spend literally three weeks at the Library of Congress, 15 hours a day, doing all this stuff, um, there is so much stuff that we caught because we had to go slowly. We couldn't go fast. And uh, Kiss Alive Forever would be one-tenth the book if we did it right now that it was um, when, it, when it came out 15 years ago because the technology wasn't as good. Yeah, I think you bring up a very good point. And you mentioned earlier going through the microfilm of uh, The Village Voice, and I've done that. And the stuff that you find yeah. when you're actually trawling through that isn't indexed is so you if you're paying attention yes. going through those um and going through at other sources you'll be finding stuff like uh peter chris ads selling his drums um that you're just not going to find from putting in search terms you're only going to do it by reading it and actually i i think you'll agree luck plays a lot in oh yeah because Without question there is nothing yeah. more mind-numbing actually than going through microfilm and just endless pages after pages after pages and finally something jumps off your off the page and you you have a gotcha moment and it's like holy shit yeah. never and a lot of the time it's tangents so kurt, yeah. kurt did you spend a lot of time in libraries going through microfilm going cross-eyed um wanting to bang your head against the desk well, Kurt, you got to tell your Capitol Theater needle in a haystack find here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did. I got really lucky that I have a, a really wonderful research library about five miles from my house. And so I, I could spend months and months in there. It took years to go through everything that was in there. Um, but uh, early on, uh, we, in 1997, we got to go to Performance Magazine, which was still uh, active at the time. And I literally got to spend two days in their offices on their photocopier, photocopying all these issues of performance from 74 to 76. And um, I didn't have time to stop and read them. It was just quicker to photocopy the issues than it was to go through it. So that night I'm at the hotel looking back through stuff. And I find this ad for the Capitol Theater. And it's, it's got five years worth of shows. And you, you literally, there's one show listed on there uh, for Kiss, John Hammond, and somebody else, I think. And it, it was the show was never mentioned anywhere else. It was supposed to be, um, oh my god, who was the band Jeff that was supposed to be? It was a black? Oh, it was Golden Earring. It was supposed to be a Golden Earring show, oh, yeah. and Golden Earring canceled. And it happened after they already went to press with the New York Times, so there was no mention of it anywhere in any newspaper except for this ad after the fact um, in performance. And if it wasn't for that, we never would have had that one gig. To this day, I don't think it's ever been published anywhere else. And so, um, you know, that, to this day, when we see other people with lists, that's one of the gigs I look for. And if I see that on there, I know they took it from us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's just one of literally dozens of, of, of accidents. Um, you know, I, I told the story the, the other day about 
finding a, an electric ballroom ad for three shows in September of 74. And um, the day after was a gig by Nectar, who I love. They're kind of a Pink Floydish type art rock band from, from England uh, at the time. And uh, I thought to myself, oh, how cool would that have been to see key, three Kiss shows, stay an extra day and get, get to see Nectar? And the only reason it jumped out is at me because I was one of the few people who knew who Nectar was and, you know, loved that band. And and I saw, you know, a little blurb that said Nectar had to cancel because of, I don't know, work visa problems. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if Alex Cooley would have asked Kiss to stay an extra day. And on a hunch, I kept combing for it. There's nothing in the ads. And then on, the I think, the, the day of the show in a tiny, tiny six-point font, there it was, tonight, Electric Ballroom Kiss. And uh, again, like, like Kurt said, I don't think I've ever seen anybody else uh, have that because it's just dumb, blind luck that you, you run over these uh, run over these things. But, you know, hey, we'll take, we'll take good luck. <laughs> yeah, and, and nowadays, of course, GSB is online. You can go back and check out all the great Speckle right. Bird issues. Right, yep, right, absolutely. You know, how. And even with the interviews, Julian, they, they would happen. We would get one, then we would get another, we'd get another. And for some reason, Bill O'Coin would not talk to me. I don't know why, but he did not want to talk to us for the book. And so I called a friend of his, a guy named David Lee. And said, will you talk to us because um, I'm having trouble getting Bill on the phone. He said, well, let me talk to Bill. And so 24 hours later, I'm sleeping. The phone rings and it's Bill a coin calling. Going, okay, you got me. You got me. (laughs) (laughs) I surrender. I literally had to wake up out of bed, hit play and record and and go to town with uh, doing a coins interview that way. Yeah. Just kind of stream of consciousness here. When Kurt and I started this, we had the goal in mind to get every single KISS performance from the time they started until you know the, the present time at, at that point. And we never talked about it, but we always, I think there was this unwritten idea that we weren't going to get everything. There was going to be stuff from 73 or early 74 or whatever, and we we're just going to have to accept the fact that we weren't going to find it. And we never really talked about that. But um, one day, I happened to get an email by somebody who said that he knew the uh, promoters of those February 1974 Canadian shows. I thought, oh, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. At this point, we didn't have much of anything um, really specific about 73 and, you know, probably, you know, the first few months of 74. And so um, I, I... got this guy's phone number and I called this guy named named Michael White and thinking uh you know he's not going to remember much and within 5 minutes had the exact dates at the exact venues which Gene had written down wrong in in his notebooks had the exact attendance figures how many comps how many tickets were um put on the ticket manifest the names of the opening acts and several stories and I called Kurt up and I said, you won't believe what this guy just told me. And I got the promoter for the third um, Canadian gig. So we, you know, kind of conference called that guy, a guy by the name of Frank Wipert, who did the uh, Winnipeg show. And he had every bit as good a memory as, um, as Michael White did. And so it was that point, that was the revelation point to where we both said, holy shit, we can get everything now 
and it wasn't too much longer before you know Kurt managed not only to find more out about Coventry but get the owner of Coventry on the phone. We we're talking to waitresses and bartenders at Coventry, and that was when Kiss Alive Forever went from a nice effort to something that was so much better than we ever initially thought it could be. That was the that was the big revelation day for us. Now, that was Paul Sub, right, Kurt? And no one had ever interviewed him prior to you guys getting getting a hold of him, really. That's right. right. I, don't even, I don't even know if Paul's still living at this point, because I think he was an older gentleman when I talked to him 20 years ago. But, uh, yeah, nobody had talked to him, and nobody knew things like uh, the fact that Coventry had two separate stages and that Kiss were actually opening for ISIS as opposed to headlining uh, those December 73 shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had all kinds of stuff to tell us. One of the things that was, the Kiss was never a draw at Coventry. He never right. liked booking Kiss because they never drew any people. So, um, yeah, it was it was really cool getting to talk to him and just uh, seeing what would happen because he would have the phone numbers of he, he knew uh, somebody else and he would give us a phone number for them and it really would it would just lead to, to five or six more things. He had, he had a photographer that he knew. And unfortunately, the photographer never shot Kiss. But the photographer had all these amazing pictures of Coventry just so we could see what it looked like on the inside. Yeah. So as, yeah. as you're working on a project, as I know from the projects that I've, I've worked on, particularly with Tim as a, having a partner, did you guys agree at any time during this project that there is a gotcha moment that if we don't have something, we can't publish this as a book? Did you? Was there ever anything that you felt it it would be impossible for you to p- go ahead and publish without getting something in particular um hmm. and whether it be information or a type of information or even an interview uh with someone was there anything that you ever thought would prevent you from completing it or being able to say yeah we're done we're, we're ready we can publish i don't really think so i think um we, we we were never ready to publish. I mean, they had to take it out of our hands. We blew <laughs> we blew three deadlines, and we were working up until literally the very last day. Yeah, uh, we, we we blew two deadlines, and then the World Trade Center disaster gave us a third. Um, and and yeah, they they were just we were driving them crazy. And I agree with Kurt. There wasn't a specific if we don't get this. I think, and it's a really good question. I've never thought about it before. But and I don't know if you agree, Kurt. But there, I think we probably sensed when we were done more than we had a very specific. We've got to have this before we publish. And what about from the early Kiss crew? Because there are a lot of guys involved in the band in '74 for maybe one or two shows here and there. Yeah. Were there? Did you manage to reach everyone you wanted to, or did anyone just uh, say no? I'm not talking about that, and give you the finger and hang up. Nobody uh, did that, but we still to this day are trying to find a gentleman named Chris Griffin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Chris, I actually met him in 1993 at the, in the ladies' room at Studio 54, believe it or not. <laughs> Why were uh, you well, in uh, the ladies' room at Studio 54? Yeah, so I, I, do, I, do I have to stop, I have have to stop recording right now to hear this story? I haven't heard this. <laughs> I was hanging out with Lydia, and she told me to come in, so... <laughs> So oh. Liddy and I were hanging out, and Chris, for some reason, Chris Griffin was in there. And um, we uh, we were all at an Ace show. And um, <clears throat> Chris, uh, I met him and talked to him, and that was the last anybody's ever seen him. 
that we know of. But we've never been able to find him. And he was there from probably January, maybe December 73, up through May of 74. So he's somebody we've always wanted to find. But we, we uh, despite the unusual spelling in his name, which is C-R-I-S, we have never been able to find him. Uh, and Tony Canal, Kiss's er- first uh, big wardrobe designer guy. Uh, we also believe we believe that he's probably no longer with us, or possibly uh, went back to Cuba, where he's from. Well, then there's two others that we couldn't find at the time. One we found uh, is Paul Cheveria and Sally, that, that fans might know, who was um, Jean's or Paul's tech first, and then Jean's tech after that, and was there for a long time, from April '74, left for a little bit, but then was there all the way through the end of Dynasty, and um, we contacted him and he just kind of politely declined and uh, even jr who was the guy who hired him uh couldn't get couldn't get paul to talk and he wasn't a jerk about it at all he was perfectly nice he just didn't want to talk to us i think probably out of deference to paul and gene and uh, the fact that he was still working in the business and just didn't want to risk any you know bad karma or anything and then the other person that we couldn't find although we have found since is uh mike mcgirl um, who was Kiss's tour manager as opposed to J.R. Smalling's road manager um, from 74 through 76. And we didn't find him until – how long ago was it, Kurt? I mean – It was probably around the time in, of the magazine. Okay, so it's probably been about 10 years that we found him. But at the time, we, we, couldn't, we, couldn't, find, uh, uh, we couldn't find Mike McGurl. Um, he was just gone, but he popped up. So let's talk about some of the tours that are contained within Kiss Alive Forever. Um, what was the most difficult tour for you guys to get to a point where you felt confident you'd accomplished every single date, that you had everything detailed that you you possibly could, obviously leaving aside the possibility of something being missed, but you felt it was as complete as it was going to get? Well, a really good example is the, the Chris Lent gave us this diary of 1976, and it was... Uh, Kiss's financial papers for 76, and it showed every gig that they played with uh, how much they made for each show. I mean, a real nice breakdown. The problem with that, you know, we thought we had it complete, uh, but the problem was there was that uh, May 1st or May 4th, the 76 show in Illinois at May, the Juke May, High School. May 4th in Mount Prospect, Illinois, yeah. Okay. That wasn't in there because Kiss didn't make any money from it because it was a charity gig. And so, you know, we realized no matter how complete the information seemed, uh, and no matter how many times we thought we had something complete, there was usually still a little check mark or an asterisk next to it that would somehow we wind up getting another show out of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I from my perspective, seventy four was by far the most difficult from the time they started touring up till maybe the end of I guess um, hotter than hell. Uh, was exponentially more difficult to research than everything else put together, um, especially early 74, because itineraries, even when we got itineraries, in fact, about a month before we went to press, maybe even less, I got 40 pages of itineraries for Moose, all 1974. And you'd think, wow, that that's it. Now we got all in 1974. Julian, those itineraries must have been valid for somewhere between 17 and 23 minutes each. <laughs> they, I mean, th- those things, you know, the more we dug into it, the more we thought, what? That's not right, is it? 
And, you know, it was helpful. Believe me, it was very, very helpful. Uh, but 1974 was just an absolute mess because they were co they couldn't advance gigs. They didn't have the money to do that. So they were constantly showing up and canceling on the spot. They were constantly, you know, getting booted off tours or, uh, you know, uh, getting dragged into the studio all of a sudden to do this, that, or the other thing. And 1974 was just impossible. And to this day, I think Kurt and I might be most proud of the fact that 15 years later, there's not really anything from 1974 in terms of a brand new show that has popped up. Um, there's some canceled shows that we found that we didn't know about. There's a couple of instances where um, there was a show that uh, that we knew about, and it turned out that there were two two shows that night. They did you know two sets. But there's nothing from from '74 that we found that was a brand new show, and that that was that took some effort, to say the least. Yeah, we, I, we would literally have to take an issue of Performance Magazine, and go through it act by act, and look at every date on every act and see if any of them yes. we could get to correlate with a Kiss date. Yeah, um, because Kiss are second or third on the bill, and sometimes they weren't even advertised. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, we really had to research it in reverse. So, you know, we're looking at red bone itineraries and um, uh, mini ripples itineraries. Yeah, I mean, yeah, anything that could possibly have happened, especially any of the ATI artists, uh, which was Kiss's booking agency. Right. Um, you know, it, it was just unreal. Yeah. So, that so, would, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that methodology. I mean, starting on you know cross-referencing stuff out of performance and other trade publications, do you then go into newspaper archives in those cities to see if you can find any ads, any reviews, and and whatnot? What sort of what was your kind of Sherlock process for these? After well, it's interesting when we it was interesting when we first started out. Like I said, Kurt you know, didn't have a computer 20 years ago. So I was the one who was archiving all of it in the Excel sheet. And Kurt had a job at that point in time where he was traveling constantly, which served us really, really well. So if Kurt was in Denver, he'd say, okay, tell me what shows Kiss did in Denver. And I'd look through our Excel sheet and say, okay, here's one from uh, January 76. Here's one from, and whatever they were. And so Kurt would have these lists Every day, um, you know, whatever city he was in, so like, okay, here are six shows I can go look up. And Kurt would head to the local university, spend a few hours there looking through their newspaper archives, and he'd find whatever he found. Um, and he could also, you know, um, make local phone calls to the, the venues or anything like that. And that served us really, you know, r really pretty well um, uh, in the first, you know, couple of years of, of re researching that. Yeah, I think you also mentioned on the podcast um, show that promoters were much more willing to kind of help you and send you information about yeah. that. Uh, tell us a little bit about how, because nowadays you're not going to get any response out of the conglomerates. No, yeah. not at all. It, it was incredible. I, I remember calling Stone City Attractions in Texas, who were still open at the time. And they were so nice, they literally sent me their KISS file. So they had pictures, <laughs> posters, handbills, 8x10s that they would use for the ads, um, along with uh, a show list of every show that they had promoted by KISS. Uh, and then they would say yeah. something like, you know, if you want to talk to uh, Jack, the owner, just let us know. And so I we would interview Jack, and that's a lot of the things we never even put in the book. I mean, we interviewed the promoters as well, 
Um, and every once in a while they'd have a, a story that'd be good, but sometimes we'd be interviewing them not so much for stories, but just to find out, you know, it, it confirm which Kiss shows happened and which didn't. Right. And you would, you'd be so surprised, um, like Jeff was kind of indicating earlier, uh, there was a famous promoter in uh, Cleveland that just died recently, Jules Belkin. And uh-huh. you could literally ask this guy, um, you could say something like, Kiss, Youngstown, Ohio, 1974. He will tell you the exact date and the exact attendance that they got and why it was so low or why it was so high. And he knew every show like that that he had done. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And it was fortunate, again, in our, in our timing, I don't think a lot of people had reached out to, you know, the, the promoters to ask them about that. And we found them all so very, very, um, you know, willing, happy, eager even to, to talk about this stuff. They would give us and we always were very, very respectful of them professionally. And we'd always lead with, look, we don't need to know what your gate receipts are. We don't want to know that. We don't want to know what your, you know, your box office take was tonight. We just want to know, you know, the dates, the other bands on the bill, and if you're willing, you know, the attendance. And once you, you know, you showed that you're being professional um, uh, and showed deference to that, they were all super, super nice um, uh, to, to help us out. I don't really... I remember one, one were just absolute. They delighted in being assholes, um, and you know it's you know fine whatever. But um, almost everybody else was really great. And another thing that that, that kind of comes to mind that Kurt and I figured out was that even Kurt, traveling from city to city, couldn't canvas everywhere we needed to be. So. There were times when, you know, Kurt would call up a local library and say, hey, could you go look this stuff up? And that's kind of a big ask to have a librarian who's a complete stranger go look this up. And Kurt would, you know, kind of figure it out fairly quickly that the thing to do was call up university libraries because they had the most stuff. And who works at a university library desk but students who are bored out of their skull because they need this job for their weekend beer and pizza fun, right? And they're sitting there with nothing to do. And so if somebody calls up and say, hey, instead of sitting there gazing off into space at the desk, would you go look up some information on KISS for us? They were thrilled to do this. So we would say, hey, we need you to look in this paper between these dates for a KISS ad, a KISS listing, a KISS review, a KISS pre-show article, anything. And, you know, once Kurt kind of figured that out, it was university libraries all the way, <laughs> and it, it, it worked. So uh, it, it, it really did. Let's talk about some dates. Um, I'm, I'm sure both of you have one date out of Kiss Live Forever that you are most – gives you that warm and fuzzy feeling of we got that information, we got that show, mm-hmm. that one – particular one that was the accomplishment that you were just thrilled to find something about or something that was just particularly interesting do do you have any of those sorts of dates that you're you're just like wow i can't believe i found out that well for Mm. me it's the the may 73 show um in uh palisades new york uh we literally had two words sneedon's landing that's all we knew we knew the date and the word sneedon's landing and at the time, the only thing that came up was a gas station. And so we called a gas station attendant and asked him, you know, did Kiss play there? What, 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 and he explained to us what Sneedon's Landing was and that we probably wanted to talk 
to the Palisades Library because they would know the history of what had happened in Sneen's Landing. And so sure enough, we called over there, and somebody at the library knew enough about what we were talking about and put us in touch with uh, a woman named Antonetti that had been one of the principal organizers of the benefit. And, you know, and we couldn't believe it. So we had the venue. We knew the building. Uh, you know, we, we wound up getting everything uh, just on this gig where the only words we had we're Sneedon's Landing and uh, yeah, and talking to a guy at a gas station. That's, yeah. that's absolutely amazing. I'm, it just blows my mind. I, I was trying to think of something that was real needle in a haystack, um, you know, for me. And other than that, that one that I mentioned about the, the electric ballroom, um, just on a, on a whim, uh, that was a pretty that was a pretty tall uh, tall task. But when I go back and I look through um, our Excel database, which the thing that we started 22 years ago, I literally still have it and still still use it. Um, there's some stuff, every time I look at it, I go, wow, we really got that? I don't even remember that. Um, and it's, um, all of it's really pretty, uh, really pretty amazing uh, to me. Uh, just the memories I have of sitting down with, you know, Mickey and Peasy and talking to him for hours on end and getting all these little tidbits of, uh, uh, of, of information um, uh, like one of the ones I remember well, since I'm from St. Louis, is the Keishi Kite, Kite Fest that they did. Um, and I remember talking, getting to talk to a lot of the DJs that worked at Keishi uh, about that and kind of getting, um, like getting the opening act for that one. That was a tough one. That was a tough one. It actually came from a guy who attended the show and ended up playing bass for about five minutes in Wasp. And I can't even remember the guy's name, Johnny Rod. Johnny Rod, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, it's this local band. They're kind of like Funkadelic called 13th, 13th Floor or something like that. And um, years later, I found a, a, a newspaper review of that show in a college newspaper that I'd never run across. And he was right. There was. There was a picture of them uh, up on stage. Yeah, they were kind of a um, kind of you know, United Colors of Benelton outfit, just in terms of their. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a black guy. There's a white guy. There's an American Indian guy. There was an Asian girl. There was yeah. It was just like a lot of um, a lot of ethnicity going on. But he was right. And you know, so that that might be one of the ones I think. Wow, that, that was that was a lucky shot. <laughs> Well, I know it's impolitic for the interviewee to ask the interviewer anything, but um, when it comes to 1974, I know you've done you know a lot of your own KISS research on you know various topics, but <coughs> there's a couple of 1974 shows that I thought were kind of interesting, and I wanted to get your take on it. Um, one of them was a Rockford, Illinois show in November of 1974. That I think you'll remember, Kiss published their touring history in the farewell tour book. Yeah. Such as it was. <laughs> um, we'll leave it at that. We won't be unkind to them. Um, and there was a, a, a date in there for Rockville, Illinois. I have no idea where they got it from. And there was also one in February of 76 for Metropolis, Illinois. <laughs> 
And again, I have no idea where the hell that came from. We know it didn't happen because there's there's nothing on the itineraries or that 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 uh, paper that Kurt referenced earlier about the um, the uh, the appearances. But Kurt made the observation that Tommy and Spiro, who put that book together, put that in there just as a laugh because Gene's a big fan of Superman. And where does Superman come from? Yep, Metropolis, exactly. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's one of the dates that when I saw that, I, I chuckled because I, I'd never seen anything about that. I, so I don't, I don't know where it came from. That's that's for sure. But that's uh, one of those funny ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think Kurt's probably spot on with that observation that they were just. Um, but the weird thing is, is that they gave a venue name and Metropolis is a tiny, tiny, tiny little town. And. They gave the venue name as R.W. McCartney Hall. That exists. So not only did they put it in there as a, as a laugh, but they actually did research on, it, <laughs> uh, on their joke. So, you know, um, I guess I'll tip my hat for, for that. But, yeah, no, I was just kind of curious on, on, on what you thought of, uh, you know, some of that stuff. You know, I, I, I have still dates that I, I wonder about. I, I think you've got them in your in your book. Uh, Yakima, Washington, 75 is one mm. that bugs the living daylights out of me. You've got it as a temple date. Um, uh, through my, <coughs> my work in the library, it, you know, I, it looks like, yeah, it's a, it's a whole date because, what was it, uh, Glenn Yarbrough and the Limelighters actually performed that night. Right. In, in that town. But there's a firsthand account of a guy who recalls Kiss playing in a gymnasium in Yakima mm. at, mm-hmm. the, at the time. And I've never found anything. You know, we're never n- going to know it all. I think that's, you know, what I'm more alluding to by mentioning that, that th- there always seems to be a story of, you know, just one more show. I can't stop this research because <laughs> there's just one more thing that I might find out. Um, how do, how do you go about putting Kiss Alive Forever into digital? Because I'll show you my copy. I actually had this out the other day, and it's so worn, it's held together with band clips now because the spine oh, wow. the spine fell apart. So I'll, oh, I'll, no. I'm yeah. going <laughs> to own up and say that I've had a digital copy of Kiss Alive Forever for years because I scanned this in and OCR'd it. Um, <laughs> but what what you've put Smart out move. what you've put Smart out as move. an iBook looks absolutely fantastic. Um, I bought a copy yesterday and I have had a flip through. How do you decide how to handle that and what that, what you're going to do with the book? Did you think about updating it, um, fixing anything in there, or was it this book stands so well on its own that we're comfortable just making it available digitally? rather than calling it a second edition, third edition, or, or whatever. How do you, did you uh, kind of make that decision? It was me talking Jeff into it, going, oh, this will be easy. It'll take two weeks. Come on, this is nothing. And six months later, we were still <laughs> working on solving problems. Um, the, uh, the idea came across just for the fact that there's a whole entire new generation of KISS fans that have sprouted up, and the book is going for... Astrical, uh, excuse me, um, large sums of money on eBay. Astronomical. And, thank there you. you. Go. <laughs> I couldn't quite get it out. And um, it just, uh, it just floored us that there were, there were, yeah, the book was basically unavailable. 
So if uh, somebody wanted it, they had to shell out maybe 60 for a used or 200 for a new copy. Uh, so we decided, let's put this thing out digitally. There's obviously still an audience for it. Um, well, you had to have to decide things like uh, EPUB fixed or EPUB flowing. And um, you know, just there were all these different variables that went into it that we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we learned as we went, wound up consequently redoing it three or four different times. Um, and we were working with uh, Kiss's graphic designer, uh, Tom German, who helped us. If it wasn't for him, we never would have even been able to, uh, to get as far as we have. But um, Kiss Alive Forever suffered a faith that it was done in uh, a program called Quark, which uh, was very popular up through about... 2003 and about 2003 a new program came out called InDesign that's still in use to this day and every graphic designer in the world uses InDesign and here we are stuck with these old Quark files that nobody wanted anything to do with so um, we we had uh, to basically redo the book from scratch uh, just to get it from Quark into InDesign and then uh, go from there, fixing typos and errors that had been in the book initially. We did we did fix about 200 or more typos or errors, including adding one show that we forgot to put in, which was Amarillo 1983 on the Creatures Tour. We had the information, but we just somehow accidentally left it out of the book. So that is in the new book because it was supposed to be in there all along. What about other other corrections? Did you go in? T- did you make a decision that we can't um, kind of do overdo it? You know, by going back and you know, because there are some dates that now we know are mm-hmm. you know got canceled or were temple dates rather than actual ones. Did you, how did right. you make the conscious decision to kind of leave it alone as much as possible? Well, we knew that you know under the line we're going to do a full on update of this book not only to update all of the stuff that's happened since we first published but update all the stuff that was in the original book and when we started looking at making a digital book um, we didn't want to absolutely start from scratch and we thought man that is going to be a ton of work and we knew that the updated version we really wanted to make it radically different than um, the the initial edition not only expand the information but you know get more pictures and that was a larger you know project um, than, than we had time for at the moment so as Kurt mentioned there are all of these fans that had mentioned to us over the years hey where can I get this and it's been out of print for seven or eight years the used copies are probably 50 bucks you know new or close to new copies are you know 150 200 so we thought, well, let's get the book as it is. And it was, you know, mostly ready to go, uh, you know, despite it being in Quark and InDesign. Um, once we got transferred over, it was pretty much ready to go. And when you fix typos, that's easy. You know, you drop a comma out here, put a comma in there, and you don't have to worry about columns shifting across pages and photos being moved and, and, and everything. So fixing the really obvious mistakes was a piece of cake. To go back and add everything in would have required a redraft, and we didn't want to do that in a half measure. We didn't want to try to cram new information into the old format. And so we said, let's put it out as it was, 
anybody that doesn't have the book yet, um, you know, can have it. The people whose books are falling apart now can have it <laughs> in a in a fashion. You can, that you can now have it on your phone with you. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. And you can search it and and things like that. And then we'll do the full on uh, update. Um, you know, in the not terribly distant future, um, it'll be a, a year or so at least. But um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do the full update with all of the corrections, additions, and and uh, new stuff done. I know you've mentioned that you're going to do a Kindle version. How on earth are you going to do that? I, I, it just boggles my <laughs> mind how you're how you're going to do that. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's that's a good question, Kurt. Do you, have you figured that out yet? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's not easy. Kindle has a really ridiculous pricing restriction. Uh, to start, and not only that, they they require their own um, version of the book that needs to be done. So it, it's almost like you have to start from scratch all over again. So it it is yeah, it's a nightmare. Uh, but we 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 already did it, so it's it's done. But we're just kind of waiting uh, with the pricing structure and with Kindle to kind of get some of their formatting stuff in line. But there's a known industry issue that we've been told by some of the people that we were talking with and we were advised to wait about two or three months before we did a Kindle edition to avoid um, people getting a 4,000 page version of the book. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that, that's yeah. a definite benefit to the iBook is that it looks fantastic. It looks as it should and it's retained its integrity. Uh, that, that was my immediate impression when I, when I opened that thing up on my phone first before I put it on my iPad. It was like, mm -hmm. wow, this looks just absolutely fantastic. It looks how it does, whereas everything I've ever seen on a Kindle, um, unless it's a text-based book right. rather than a multimedia right. experience, which with your pictures and your layout, <laughs> Kiss Alive Forever is a visual feast as well as you know a very engaging product. Um, you know that, That's why I ask about the Kindle. Let's talk about some other dates. And I, I wanted to – you're such a wealth of knowledge, the pair of you. On, on some of these things and try and clear up some rumors. I, sure. Love Gun Tour. One of the yeah. outstanding rumors is like the Destroyer Tour the year before, they played a song one time only live at the first show, and for years people have said that was almost human. Tour documentation, I think that we all have, it suggests that it's uh, Got Love for Sale is actually the song that was performed at that show. What do you know about that, uh, the, the early Love Gun Tour? Yeah, there's two pieces of documentation that, that have surfaced, and both say got love for sale. There's no mention of almost human. I find it very difficult to believe that at some point, um, I think it would have been less than 24 hours before the show, they would have switched out got love for sale for almost human. So I'm pretty certain somebody's just got a mismemory going on. Yeah, but oh my God, just to think. No one no. had a tape recorder. Come on, people. Well, yeah, yeah we, Kurt and I had a similar reaction when we were doing some research. We were um, we were actually in the Library of Congress. Had been there for two weeks. We're going crazy and decided to take you know, take a break and go up to New York, see some friends up there, including Lydia. And while we were up there, we went to visit Mark Rabbits, who was the, the Jules Fisher stage designer that not only designed the, uh, the original Kiss sign and the cobweb from the, the, the Fillmore East uh, in January 74, but also designed the Destroyer, you know, Summer Tour 76 stage. 
and <clears throat> while we were visiting, he and his wife in their their um, you know their Brooklyn uh, uh, brownstone, he had out the original um, you know mock up of the stage and all this great stuff. And one of the things he had was a sheet um, of the the the, the list at the, the rehearsals in the first night. And he handed it to me, and I'm reading this thing, and I'm like, Sweet Pain, Ace Frehley guitar solo, Gene Simmons' blood, you know, Gene Simmons' bass solo, the fourth song of the, the night, what? And I handed it to Kurt, and we're like, wow, what? Seriously? So <clears throat> it, it would be, you know, astonishing to get the, the you know, the, the audio of that first show and or maybe the second show. Who knows how long that lasted? But yeah, there are moments where you look at something and say, "That can't be right. That can't be right." But and that you know, that that that's a classic example of it. <clears throat> what about Tokyo '78? Is there video, Kurt? No. Um, as far as we know, 1978 has never existed. Uh, I wish it did. Um, Kiss has a database that I've seen of all their video inventory, and they have. Uh, Tokyo 77 mislabeled as Tokyo 78 in that database that might have contributed to uh, the the rumors that it existed but um, they had just been there less than a year before um, and the stage was really the same stage just different outfits for the most part I'm sure the NHK didn't see any reason to come back and uh, do it again that early So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, as far as we know, there is no footage known of that. I do know that the NHK is working on a KISS special for, um, I guess it would be the, would it be the 50th anniversary or the 40th anniversary of... Um, 40th, right? 40th yeah. of uh, Budokan. Um, and uh, they're, they're searching high and low for footage. So if something exists that we haven't seen... It's, we're going to see it pretty soon. I'm assuming there's some footage from the press conference that'll pop up. One can only hope so. I think you know, Kiss fans who use Kiss Alive Forever as a reference in their collecting, you know, they go through it to see what was archived, and that's another very strong point for the book. Was you managed to find a lot of people who had actually recorded shows to get the set lists and you know for many years a lot of that stuff hasn't circulated until recently a lot of the things have started finally popping up for people to be be able to listen to i mean obviously i think most important of that is the daisy show which you know i was absolutely floored when that finally came out and to be able to hear it um the 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 loft rehearsal (laughs) coming out um how did you find a lot of those sets, you know, and people, and get number one, get them to give you access and give you the set list. Did it take a lot of uh, twisting of arms, or were people it, very willing to say, "Hey, I take the show," you know, "here, here's a copy of it," or you know, "here's the set list from the show," if they wouldn't let you have it? In many cases, it almost fell into our laps. There were lots of, you know, uh, points, especially when I was kind of, and you remember back when I was kind of networking, doing a lot of that stuff online, where I was literally saying, "Hey." Did you go to a KISS show? Tell me about it. What do you remember? People would come up to me and say, oh, yeah, I went to you know, went to KISS in Springfield in 76. Yeah, my buddy taped the show. And they were willingly saying that. Um, and, you know, a lot of the fans, you know, and I would just ask, like, would you mind telling me what the set list was? You know, giving it, giving it a listen. And at that point, they would say, would well, you want a copy? And I was like, 
Sure. And I was always, you know, we're, both of us were always very mindful of their privacy saying, hey, we're not, we appreciate so much you sharing this with us. Um, we're not going to share this, you know, you know, hand these tapes out to, to anyone else because we weren't in this at all um, for, you know, to take these things and, you know, sell them or license or anything like that. We wanted the information. That's, that's really, we were information junkies on that point. Um, but um, the stuff came from various sources, from fans, the road crew, um, you know, all around. Kurt, Kurt's a little bit better at remembering where the stuff came from than, than I am. Um, uh, so I don't know if you wanted to talk yeah, about it. I mean, just to give people an idea of how far this went, my mother was working at a furniture store in Oklahoma City in 1996 and she had mentioned to her boss that oh yeah my son's writing a book it's about the rock group kiss well as it just so happened the woman that was my mom's boss had been a huge kiss fan (laughs) had gone to the alive 2 show and had recorded the alive 2 show in oklahoma city on audio tape so Oklahoma City 77 came from my mother's boss um, that had been on the front row in Oklahoma City 77 and recorded the show, which was the opening night of the Alive Tour, so we wanted to get the set list, obviously, uh, from any opening night was always a big deal. So, um, you know, if it wasn't for my mother, we would never have had Oklahoma City 77, believe it or not. That's a, I mean, yeah. just just how does that happen? I mean, that's just the stars aligning, isn't it? So, it I'm really glad. is. It, yeah, it is. And, you know, the road crew had a lot of stuff. Um, well, not a lot, but they had some stuff that they were glad to share with us. But w- one of the, the amazing things about the night that we found the Daisy tape and what ended up being the loft rehearsal is that when we got the tapes, all we knew is that it was a multi-track tape, thick four-track um, of Kiss. We had no idea what was really on it. And so we've got the, the we've got what we think is going to be something amazing, and your mind just runs. What is it? What is this? What is it going to be? Is this going to be from the Club Seventy Three? Is it going to be what is it? Are they going to be demo tapes? And um, Moose was who, who, by the way, Peter Orquinto is his name. Moose Moose is one of their original roadies. Runs an audio restoration service. That's what he does for his living out in Hollywood. I mean, he's literally restored the audio to Charlie Chaplin films. I mean, the guy's uh, a genius with this stuff, and he was kind enough to do this. And it ended up being the Daisy and the Loft rehearsal. And to this day, we're still not 100% certain what day the Daisy is from. We just know that it's at the Daisy because Peter mentions it, and we guessed, I guessed, that when I first heard it, it's like, well, Paul mentions, hey, this is Unwed Father's Day. Tomorrow, Tomorrow is Unwed Father's Day. Which is an incredibly weird joke to make. I don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> so we just, you know, intuited that, well, maybe that was the June 15th or whatever it was show that was actually the day before Father's Day that year. That's the only way we guessed what day that was. Um, and then the loft rehearsal we initially thought was Latang's until Larry Harris pointed out to us that Kiss only rented that for an afternoon. They didn't go in there and rehearse for several days and uh paul stanley when i wrote that article for the quarterly had asked can i hear this so i sent him a couple mp3s of it and he goes oh no that's us rehearsing in the loft and so kurt and i kind of listened to the the tape and kind of 
put two and two together and to our best effort i think it was what august 22nd kurt is what we had we had guessed something like that i thought it was the 23rd but yeah yeah something right right in there and so that that's a lot of what happens when you're trying to put this stuff together is that you don't have all the information and you've got to try to stitch together a t-rex skeleton even though you're missing a leg bone you know and um uh, it takes a lot of detective work so um but it's fun I should point out that there's actually more of the daisy than most people have ever heard. There was a recording that had been erased over at the end of the tape. And we literally went back on this tape and, I mean, we had to bump this thing up like 100 dB and clean it and dehiss it. And uh, we wound up capturing uh, an unknown performance of Cold Gin live that we assume is from the daisy but um apparently sometime in the 80s coffee had spilled on the daisy tapes and we lost there was another reel there's a whole other reel that was lost the other reel had go now on and so uh unfortunately that that was lost in the 80s sometime well that's a nice segue into stuff that was lost in the 80s i mean that immediately makes Uh. me think bill graham there you go. And, and the archives. When I first moved out to San Francisco, I actually talked with a guy who actually worked there, and he said that story's bullshit about the Kiss stuff being lost in the fire. I don't know the veracity of that, whether that's just uh, a guy posturing. But years later, there was a conversation online between two fans, and it's been de-archived, which just kills me because I never screen-capped it at the time, um, who were talking about a five-figure sum that had been paid for the June 74 show. Um and, yeah, and that's, that's that's the one that kills me because um, I've also talked to the guy who did the transfers of the whole Winterland archive. So you right. know, you know, it, it it's those mysteries of that would be one of the key shows that I would love to see. That for me is the oh, holy, yeah. the Holy Grail. My personal Holy yeah. Grail is to see June yeah. seventy four if it has survived. Um, you know, I'd love to see it come out in a cosology type deal. But you know, what do you guys know about those lost tapes? What have you found in your travels? I, I can tell you quite a bit. Um, I'm the one that called Winterland. I'm the one that got the fire story. And the, 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 the story was never that the Kiss tapes were burned. The, the story is just that there was a fire yep. and that the tapes were missing. Um, and that's true. The, there are no tapes from the May 74 show. However, the opening acts from the January 75 show are, are still in the Winterland archives. And the tubes from June 1st, 1975, which was opening for KISS, is still in the archive. Uh, so where's if they have the opening act, why would you not have the headline? Um, and my guess, best guess is that KISS had just played Kobo. They had just purchased the videotape masters for Kobo two weeks ago in color and probably had little to no desire to go backwards and do black and white. Bill Graham hated KISS. So he didn't even want to waste the tape. And I think it was just never recorded simply because Bill Graham didn't care and Kitts didn't want to pay for it. Uh, In January 75, that would have been a different story. They still didn't have any pro shot footage of a whole concert. Paying five or six hundred dollars to get that tape wouldn't have been that big a deal at the time. Um, But uh, in May 74, I, I don't know where the tapes are. I don't think they ever existed. I don't think they were ever recorded. I don't think they were used that night. I don't know. But I can tell you this. I've seen Bill Coin's master tape log of all the tapes that were ever in the Acoin, uh offices. And 
There's a lot of great stuff on there, uh, but there is no mention anywhere of any uh, Winterland tapes um, from 74 or 75 other than the black and white one that we we all know. Yep, that, that's right. just may end up being one of those things again, like Tokyo seventy eight, that you know has become a fanciful tale. But Direction Plus put together was what was it a fifteen minute live tape in seventy four? Um, uh, Kurt, you'll probably remember what I'm I'm trying yeah. to get to. I'm not really expressing myself very clearly because I was never very big on video. But what do you remember about that? Yeah, there's a yes. ample paperwork that exists that proves that at least at one point there was a 12-minute promotional film made for the first album. Whatever happened to that and why no one has ever seen it, I'll I'll never know. But uh, I doubt we'll ever know because I've talked to everybody on the planet that could have answered the question, and no one seems to know. Um, There's even people that speculated that the paperwork was uh, just a way to get money for drugs. And that it wasn't even a real promo film. <laughs> so um, who knows? But uh, yeah, there's paperwork that shows a 12-minute promo film existed, which would be the equivalent of three songs. And I'm guessing it would have been Kiss and Time and Strutter and maybe one other one. And uh, the only time that we've seen any of the footage is in the Hotter Than Hell commercial, where about 60 seconds worth of the footage surfaced uh, later on in the year. Other than that, imagine seeing a 12-minute version of the Hotter Than Hell commercial. Somebody out there somewhere had it at one point. Yeah. Well, and, and even just fairly recently, and by the way, Kurt, the, the, um, just to clear things up, the, uh, the, the Winterland show in 74 was June. It was June 1st, 74, not, not May of 74. Uh, oh, sorry. To, no, 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 that, that, that's cool. I just want to make sure people weren't getting confused. Uh, but just recently... Um, and I did, we, we don't really know what this is yet. Um, I, I've run across quite a bit of information about some of the um, uh, – uh, th- there was something called the World Music Expo in March of 1974. Nader, um, wasn't it? Yes, done by Richard Nader. And it was supposed to be a three-day-long music industry seminar where the public could kind of interact with the music industry, a real look behind the scenes and allow the the public to look not only into the industry but also with the artists themselves and and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And it was supposed to be in the Felt Forum, which is part of the Madison Square Garden um, complex. And when you read back in a lot of the industry papers, you know, like radio and records and, and, and that type of stuff, there was quite a bit of talk from Neil Bogart uh, promoting this, that Casablanca was really going to be a major player in this, which makes sense because Casablanca would have wanted to, you know, to really kind of make something of themselves because they were just starting right now. And in those comments that Neil had made, you know, Casa Black was having, you know, this entire expo booth set up, and they were going to be showing um, video of Kiss. So this is May when Bogart made this comment. This is January of '74, I think. So you start to think, it's like, wow, what are they going to be showing? Now, the first thing that pops into mind is maybe they're going to show pieces of that Coventry show. Um, but he might also have been having something in mind to do with, you know, uh, 
who knows, maybe something at the Fillmore East, maybe something at the Academy of Music, um, maybe some of the rehearsals the, that Sean had filmed in his apartment. And so you really start to think, you know, what is that? And so that there's a couple of really, really juicy, you know, items that um, really kind of whet your appetite. Okay, let's get the shovel and go dig up another dinosaur. Um, and who knows what it is? Yeah, uh, we, we, haven't, we haven't figured it out yet, you know? Because the Fillmore wasn't just, uh, you know, the, the press show, was it? They, they actually rented that to rehearse in for, right. for, quite, for quite a period um, coming up to yes. February. What, what is it? December 73. They're rehearsing in right. there. So there, there was ample time to actually yeah. who knows what. I mean, it, it's just one of those things, like you say, that, uh, you know, come on, getting involved with Neil Bogart, Bill Alcoin and, you know, Direction Plus had done Flipside and had yes. Bogart on there. So he was very aware of what their capabilities were and what they were doing. Yeah. So it's just stunning to think. I mean, that Hotter Than Hell commercial is one of the things that bothers me. Have you ever seen a decent copy of that, Kurt? As a matter of fact, I have. Um, I, I never got a title, but I worked on the Kiss, the ill-fated Kiss movie, the uh, You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best. And as part of my job on that, it was to dig up as much rare footage as I could find. And one of the things I found was a 16-millimeter print of the Hotter Than Hell commercial. So I actually have a copy in 1080p that looks pretty outstanding. Yeah, it's good to say 1080 yeah. of 16 mil. <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to look fantastic. What, what other discoveries have you, have you made You know, for some of the cool stuff that's out there? Or not out there, I, I, more specifically. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, again, we're not bootleggers, so it's not our job to get this stuff out there. and It's our job to uncover it, and uh, I, I work in the clip licensing industry, so a lot of times I will uncover stuff, not even get a copy myself, and uh, just make sure that the, the, the film or the footage is actually preserved in one way or another, and that it's, uh, it's available for licensing, which is really the end game for the people that own footage. So... I uh, wound up working for six months straight on the KISS film, uh, doing nothing but going all around the world trying to find footage. And that was my full-time job, uh, and it was pretty incredible. And uh, I was able to find just under five hours' worth of footage from 1974 through Creatures that um, I would say about 80% of it's never before seen. And the other 20% was stuff that people had seen but hadn't seen in uh, master quality, which I was able to get tr back to a master on. Wow. So one of the things I found that uh, I'll share, um, we may actually be able to share this soon on uh, the Kids Alive Forever, the book Facebook page, but we're, we're trying to work out a deal now, is the Vegas 75 footage that exists. Um, Kiss played Vegas two shows in May of 75, and believe it or not, it was shot on 16... Uh, one of the shows, partially, was shot on 16-millimeter film. And uh, we've uncovered it. We've had it synced. And it looks incredible. And uh, it's a unique show because Kiss were playing at the Sahara Hotel in a ballroom. And yeah. it doesn't look like your typical Kiss show. looks more like the Partridge Family, almost. <laughs> so... Um, and that was what yeah. May twenty May twenty ninth seventy five. I think that That's was like right. a ten a ten p.m. show and a two a.m. show. And Rush was opening, if I remember correctly. Yeah, 
Yeah, and we have footage from both shows. And, uh, yeah, they, uh, they they were on fire at that point. So it'd be nice if people could see that Vegas 75 footage at some point. Yeah, that, that's I, it, a great period be, of history. It would be nice if I could see that. You know, if you want to <laughs> share right. Jeff over here. It, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing some of the stuff that came out. There's footage from the Century Plaza Casablanca party that no one's ever seen. Um, there's a news report from the Casablanca press party that no one's seen. Um, one of my favorite piece of footage is, is or a piece of footage is the ja- the one eight hundred commercial for the Kiss jacket. Oh, a, is that that's seventy eight, right? The flame kind of effect uh, jacket that was on the back, or not not the flame one, but the the, the, the other one? one, the leather the, one, the one that you see like on the unmasked order form. Okay. Um, uh, the one that you always seem to find like in small, available in small quantities for some reason. Um, but yeah, there's a 1980 TV spot uh, to order the you know your copy of the Kiss jacket, and I just I don't know why, but I just love that with Dynasty footage and all kinds of stuff in it. It's just amazing. What about um, the, what about the Palladium 1980? That's another oh, yeah. one, that's another um, one that's been rumored to exist either in eight mil or to have been shot properly. Um, what do you know about that? Uh, yeah, we found uh, about 10 minutes of that, uh, one minute from a news report that nobody had seen, uh, not the one that's out there, but a, sec- a second news report, and then we found nine minutes of beautifully shot 8mm footage. We were able to get back to the master reel and do a 1080p capture of that, and it looks absolutely stunning. And it's been synced with the audio, and at some point it'll see the light of day, but uh, probably not for a while. So you mentioned that you did work on the Kiss documentary, the movie that we never did get in the end. What was kind of yeah. what do you think um, for the footage that you sourced for them? What do you think was the stuff that you really thought they should have used in that? And had they selected from your stock and what you'd found, what they wanted to use before it all? I guess the wheels kind of fell apart uh, from what Gene has kind of alluded to. Yeah, they uh, they had 17 shots of my footage in there and 12 alternates. So there was going to be a lot of really cool footage in that documentary before everything just uh, went to pieces. Um, and the only thing that I could think of, and this is just pure speculation, but the director used the Tomorrow Show as the basis for the film and was cutting in and around the Tomorrow Show throughout the film, supposedly. Um and I know Paul hates that interview. And so when he told me that, I was thinking, you know, that's not going to work. But he had final cut on the film, supposedly. So, um, you know, but when I heard that the Tomorrow Show was the main focus of the you know, the centerpiece of the documentary, I, I kind of thought, yeah, I think we're in trouble here. So I don't know what happened, but that just if I had to guess, I would I would guess that the heavy use of the Tomorrow Show is what killed the documentary. Ouch. Hmm. And, yeah. and he was a KISS fan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I've covered just about everything I could think of, in, you know, without stretching this out into a multi-hour talk about unreleased recordings, videos, yeah. when we're really just talking about KISS Alive Forever, the book, uh, coming out digitally. So I, th- I think we could wrap up there, unless you've got any final thoughts that you'd like to add that we haven't covered, I, that I haven't asked you. 
You know, did I forget yeah. to ask you something that you think well, I really should have? Well, I, I remember in, and if this is just getting too into minutia, I remember you mentioned, uh, you know, um, something about like, you know, Paris 1980 or, or, uh, or, or something. Um, if there's any of those other, you know, little shows that you wanted to talk about, we can, you know, we can certainly do that or, um, um, otherwise I can, uh, I, I can share something, uh, with, with the world that, uh, Kurt, I know, um, is going to want to talk about. And I don't know, can you guys, can you guys see this, this videotape that says I on it? <laughs> oh, well, I'm getting all hot I, under I, the I, collar. I, 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 I almost, I almost got away with it. Yeah, I, well, I, I wanted to get a little bit serious uh, about this for all the listeners out there. I mean, as we tape this, this is you know June 9th, two thousand seventeen, and I just wanted to let everybody know that unless at least a thousand copies of the digital version of Kiss Alive Forever have been bought by the end of June, this this video that is I it's actually I am Kurt Gooch. It's Kurt's it's it's Kurt's kindergarten tape a one of a kind um it it's you know can you can everybody see this and everybody see this it's gonna go <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not kidding here i mean this this is this this is one of a kind footage this is the man who is going to become president of a very small bank of Quapa, oklahoma but that's beside the point um this is a travesty for humankind should this 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 video go up in flames so do the right thing do it for humanity buy kiss to life forever the ebook and i will let you <laughs> use this beautiful segue to talk about what i know you're going to talk about yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I have to tell you the truth about what really happened. So uh, on a Thursday, I was brand new to social media. And you can get banned on Facebook for oversharing, which I did not know that. So <laughs> on Thursday with a 10-day auction to go, I'm oversharing this thing and get blocked by Facebook for the next two weeks, which is after the end date of the auction. So on the day, the next day, Friday, I'm talking to Tommy Summers on the phone, the uh, co-host of uh, another Kiss podcast. Three sides of the coin. And uh, Tommy tells me, "Well, you should threaten to burn it." And we kind of <laughs> laugh, and I say, "Yeah, that that would really get him." And he goes, "No, I'm serious. You should come on Three Sides and burn it." And so I started thinking about it, and I thought, "Well, you know, that's just dumb enough to work." So I. Uh, completely unbeknownst to my friends, to everybody around me, uh, went on a tirade about I'm going to burn this thing as a publicity stunt. And people took it real seriously. <laughs> Imagine that. And Imagine. Yeah, I was not very popular for a while. And you know, it was just a publicity stunt. It was a joke. I wasn't really going to burn the iMaster. <laughs> but I had to do something to promote this auction so that uh, you know I could get the maximum amount of dollars out of this thing. Well, lo and behold, uh, you know I, 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 I did something I didn't no I don't normally do, which at the time I was I would start stuff small and uh, like you know a hundred dollars or something and let and let people bid it up. Well, sure enough, on that one I started high and broke rank, and so it didn't get the money I wanted the first time. We had to relist it. 
And then the second time, it got you know it sold, and I was I was pleased with the sale. But it uh, yeah, the whole thing was just a giant publicity stunt, and it worked because here we are over a year later, and people are still talking about it. You know, I can't I, post something without people giving me endless shit about <laughs> burning something. <laughs> you're, you're, you're always going to be given heat about it, Kurt. Simple as that. It, you, know, yeah. you, you inflamed people's passions. And and you know what? I'm the guy who bought it. So I didn't buy it because I thought you were going to burn it. I bought it because I wanted it. And you yeah. know, simple, simple as that. And it all worked out, and we all lived happily ever after, I think. you know. So, yes. so it was certainly one of those things that I thought was absolutely hilarious. It's going to live up there. I don't know if you remember years ago the April Fool's joke of the Destroyer Deluxe Edition that uh, Christopher Franchi did the artwork for the flyer that was going to be a, a three-CD, a DVD set. I forgot about that. Yeah, so it, it's, it's going to – Kurt burning videotapes is going to live with that April Fool's joke as one of those great moments in Kiss fan uh, and at least now we know it's all Tommy Summers fault uh, Tommy's a great guy I remember meeting him in LA and it just yeah. a fantastic guy to meet love to have a longer chat with him the next time I see him you know so that's well, one of those great things the winners on Metal Sludge will never let me forget it. If you think the FAQ's bad, you should see what they're like on Sludge. <laughs> yeah, I don't go to Sludge anymore. Um, you know, I had a me fan either. club there for a while, and it's you know it's special. And you know what? Life would be dull without a bit of entertainment here and there. You know, you, you always got to you got to have a personal gesture to kick you in the knees and bring you back down to earth whenever we get a little bit too serious about what we're doing in life. Just someone to to really just kick you in the nuts now and then. It, it's it's the internet's version of open mic night with Don Rickles is really what it is. And uh, yeah, life would be boring without Sludge. Well, you know, I I want to thank you both for spending the time with me to talk about Kiss Fly. Uh, Kiss Alive Forever, the digital ebook that's now available. And, you know, for digging Julian, in, digging I'm sorry, in. but hold on. There's something else we need to point out. I'm sorry. Uh, we do need to point out to people that whether you're on PC or Mac, you can download it through either iBooks or iTunes. If you're on PC, you want to do it through iTunes. If you're on a Mac, you want to do it through iBooks. But either way, you can do it, including iOS or Android. You're not limited, um, you know, or restricted from getting this just because it's through the Apple Store. Right. Right, so don't wait for that Kindle edition. Get this now because it looks as it should. It looks like a book rather than whatever Kindle may end up looking like. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Julian. Thank it's, you, it's Julian. Really great. Uh, we'd love to come back on because obviously the three of us can do this for hours and hours and on end. So it's it's been a pleasure. So check out. Kiss Alive Forever, the Facebook page. Make sure you buy the book because, and go to the Facebook page to read up on some articles that these guys are putting together. Uh, but once again, thank you for your time and thank you for everything that you've done for the Kiss community. We're still talking about a book that came out 15 years ago. And so that speaks volumes. Thank you yep. so much, Joel. Thank you both. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for spending time listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.